This morning we looked at a passage from the Gospel of Matthew, and we looked at how uh, Matthew's teaching about Jesus uh, moving from Nazareth to Capernaum, he founds re finds resonance with it, uh, with a passage in Isaiah chapter 9. And he says that Jesus actually fulfills that passage in his moving to this new area because he will be living in Galilee of the Gentiles, and he will be bringing light to a world of darkness, to people who are dwelling in darkness and the people who are sitting in darkness in the veil of death, Jesus is going to be able to bring light in that way. And it's from there that Jesus goes and to preach the kingdom of heaven. And if you go back and you read Isaiah chapter 9, you, you see the idea of people dwelling in darkness under the threat of, uh, of the Assyrian Empire. You see a promise of light that's going to, to shine in that dreadful situation. And you see that light comes in the form of a child who's going to be born, who's going to be a Davidic king, who's going to be able to reign, and he's going to have a government, and that government will bring about peace and joy and salvation. And so it becomes a very appropriate message for the ministry of Jesus. And I think that that's an important message for us to, to understand and to think about. But as you read through Matthew, one of the things you'll notice is that he does that a lot. Uh, Matthew specifically, more so than the other gospel writers, will tell you an event from the life of Jesus, and then he'll say, and this happened to fulfill, and then he'll give some sort of quotation. Uh, what I was wanting to do in the lesson tonight is look particularly at Matthew's use of the rest of the book of Isaiah. We looked at one passage this morning at how Matthew tells the story of Jesus using Isaiah, and what I thought we could do tonight is look at some other ways in which he does that. In fact, there are eight specific quotations that Matthew gives from Isaiah. Now, there are many, many more uh, allusions and references and verbal and scriptural echoes to Isaiah, and we would be here forever if we were to try to find all of those. But there are about eight times specifically that Matthew will directly cite a verse or a couple of verses from Isaiah, saying that this happened to fulfill what, what uh, was going on. And by looking at those you end up seeing some interesting things about Jesus. They each shed some light on either his identity or his mission or sometimes the response he's getting from those around him. Uh, and so by looking at it, I think you can learn a lot about uh, what Jesus is all about by looking at how Matthew reads Isaiah. One of the reasons I think that's an important thing to do is because you remember Matthew's telling a story about Jesus. And that story is based on the life of, of Jesus, certainly. But even if you're telling a story that's based on the events in the life of Jesus, one of the things that Matthew wants to show is that the events that come from the life of Jesus, they are intentional, they are planned, they are uh, part of God's divine plan. And one of the ways to do that is to show that they actually have scriptural backing, like there's Bible behind them. And when Matthew wants to uh, show that Jesus does something that resonates with the Bible, he can't pull out the book of Matthew to do that because he, he doesn't have a New Testament like that. And so what Matthew is going to do is he's going to show how Jesus connects to his Bible. And his Bible is going to be what we call the Old Testament. And so he doesn't only do it with Isaiah, but he does it with Isaiah probably more profoundly than any other book. He tells the story of Jesus against the backdrop of the prophet Isaiah. And so uh, we're going to look at some of the ways in which he does that, and uh, hopefully that helps us understand Isaiah a little bit better, Matthew a little bit better, and then most important of all, Jesus a little bit better. Um, so turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. 
in Matthew chapter 1, um, just to kind of show how Matthew wants to ground everything about Jesus in the Old Testament story, he begins with a lengthy genealogy. All right, a genealogy is the most efficient and succinct way to tell a huge, huge story. Uh, he very quickly tells the story of the people of Israel from Abraham up to Jesus by listing name after name after name after name. And what's going to happen if you read each of those names, don't just think, oh, this is boring. <laughs> you know, don't just think, and he begat him who begat him who begat him. Like, you can get lost in the begats if you're not careful. Recognize that every one of those names is a life. Every one of those names is a person. And that person lived a real life. And there's a story associated with that person. And there are uh, events in their life that matter, that shape who they are. And that their life is part of a lengthy chain that leads from the founding of, uh, of the people of Israel in, in Abraham to uh, the founding of the monarchy in King David. In fact, Matthew's going to theologically break up the genealogy into a couple different parts. One of them is Abraham to David. And he wants you to see that from the founding to the kingship of David, there are all of these people who have played a role in bringing about Jesus. But then he goes from David, the kingdom, to the Babylonian exile, which is a really strange thing to be in a genealogy because that's not a person. Uh, that's an event. But instead of uh, listing uh, like a person right there, he says... From King David to Babylonian exile, you have 14 generations. So he wants you to follow the story from the kingdom initiated under David to, in essence, the fall of the kingdom and the loss of the kingdom, the loss of the Davidic son and the Davidic king at the time that Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and took away their kingdom. And then he follows the line from Babylonian exile to the Messiah. And what the Messiah is going to do is he's going to restore that kingdom of David. He's going to be a son of David. He's also going to be the faithful embodiment of, of Abraham, or at least the faith of Abraham and, and the son of Abraham. So Matthew begins his whole gospel in chapter 1 and verse 1 by saying, The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is a faithful Israelite, he is a faithful son of David, and he's the one who's going to bring the ultimate end to exile by reestablishing the kingdom of God again. And so that's like the introduction to the Gospel of Matthew. Virtually none of the words that I just said make any sense at all if you've never read your Old Testament. Um, like everything that I just said about Babylonian exile, about all of these names, about Abraham, about David, about kingdom, about all of that stuff, they only make sense as the climax of a long, long story. If you just start in Matthew and you don't read it as part of a grand story, you're missing everything that's building up to it, and you're, you're going to miss who Jesus is all about and what he's doing. And so Matthew wants to make sure you don't do that. So he starts with this genealogy before he even tells you about the birth. He starts with the genealogy. And then the first story he tells about Jesus after the genealogy is the story of Jesus' birth, which he finds fulfillment of the events of Jesus' birth in Isaiah 7.14. Now, uh, the unique thing that we always think about with the birth of Jesus, and, and rightfully so, is that it is described in Matthew and in Luke as a virgin birth. 
Um, that is a singular event in human history, uh, unparalleled, and it shows you something very special is about to take place uh, among the people of Israel, and the person that you're going to be introduced to is unlike any other. And there is a, a word, and a lot of times when people study um, this prophecy, a lot of it deals with the uh, definition or the translation of certain Hebrew and Greek words. There's a Greek word parthenos, which means virgin. Uh, but then there's a Hebrew word alma, and the Hebrew word alma, which is used in Isaiah 7:14, doesn't specifically literally mean virgin. It means like a young woman. She might be a virgin, she might not be. That's just not what the word means. It just means a young woman um, or a young maiden. But when the Septuagint translators translated the word Alma, Hebrew, into Greek, they used the word Parthenos, which means virgin. Then when Matthew cites it, he cites the Greek version, which is virgin. And that works really well because Mary is someone who knew not a man. Mary was a virgin. And so there's a great connection right there that, the, the, uh, that Matthew sees. And a lot of people focus a lot on trying to understand, well, but is that really what Isaiah meant, or is that uh, something that, you know, kind of got picked up in translation? And, and I think that the Isaiah, I think Matthew um, is probably aware of the fact that a lot of the prophecies that he makes reference to have an original context and setting. And I think he's aware of the fact that he's often using them in a new way and in a new context and a new setting, and, and I think he knows that he's doing that there. But I would suggest... Before, or perhaps instead of getting into the weeds of all of that stuff with Alma and Parthenos and translations and Septuagint and all that, Matthew's primary reason for using that verse, I'm not sure that it even has to do with the word virgin, Parthenos, or Alma. In fact, I think it might have to do with another word that Isaiah uses. And it's one that Matthew's going to camp on really throughout the rest of his book in his descriptions of Jesus, which is the word Emmanuel. Because right after citing Isaiah, Isaiah 7, 14, look at Matthew chapter 1 and verse 22. It says, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And then he's going to quote Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and, you sh and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew is going to take his key word from that uh, citation and translate it for his readers so that there's no confusion about it. He says, which translated means God with us. Notice he doesn't go into a lengthy translation or explanation of the word Parthenos, uh, virgin. He camps on the word Emmanuel, and he wants to make sure that his readers don't skip that part. We're talking about a child who is born who is God with us. And that is setting the stage for how we're going to read about Jesus from this point forward. Because is he the son of Abraham? Absolutely. Is he the son of David? Definitely. But so much more. He is the son of God. In fact, he himself is the embodiment or the incarnation of God with us. And as you read through Matthew from this point forward, when you see Jesus having a conversation or, uh, or doing some miracle or, or involved in some uh, event, you're supposed to be reading that as, how would God among us handle this situation? And what can we learn about God by looking at this event? And if you follow the language that's used all the way up until the final verses of the book of Matthew, uh, Jesus has established his kingdom. He now has all authority in heaven and on earth. 
Think about that phrase, the very last lines of Matthew chapter 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who in the world, if you're talking about a mere human, can say all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me? That's not a thing. No matter how great of a man you are, that's not a thing any mere human being can say, that all authority in heaven is mine. That, that's, that is something that could only be true of divinity. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Remember, he is now king. He's king of heaven and earth. He's the one who has authority of all heaven and earth. And so his kingdom is not going to be bound by borders or by nationality. He's going to draw followers of his kingdom and adherents from all the nations. And so he says, go into all the world. Or he says, make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. By the way, um, if you're just a mere man and you say, hey, I want you to go baptize people in the name of the Father, in my name, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, <laughs> that's kind of a bold thing to do there. Uh, again, this is something that you can only say if you are one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I commanded you. And then notice the phrase, remember, God with us, Jesus says, and behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. And you have a direct verbal link between the first prophecy about Jesus at his virgin birth at the very first chapter of Matthew and the final words of Jesus as he is sending out his disciples after the resurrection, saying, God is with you, all authority has been given to me, I am with you. And I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Um, Jesus is one who, no matter how many generations of his disciples pass, he is one who, as the embodiment of God, continues to be with us throughout the ages. Um, Matthew wants you from the very beginning to see that kind of authority in Jesus. When Jesus teaches throughout the Gospel of Matthew, you're not listening to the wisdom of some great prophet. You're listening to the very words of God. So listen carefully. He's going to speak with an astounding authority. And it comes all the way from the very first quotation from Isaiah that he is God with us. So the stage is set for something incredible to happen uh, uh, with this person throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And it comes from the very first quotation of, uh, of the book of Isaiah. The next quotation from the book of Isaiah comes from Matthew chapter 3. And this is going to be about John the Baptist. But as you read it, we'll be able to get another look at the identity of Jesus and the role that John the Baptist plays in that identity. Uh, so look at Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, Now in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. All right, so that's a citation from Isaiah chapter 40, the first couple of verses there of Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 is a major transition in the book of Isaiah, uh, where Assyria had been the dominant world power uh, at the time. Isaiah 40 is looking to a, a future day where Babylon is the ruling power of the world. And what Babylon does, and this is going to happen all throughout Isaiah, really chapters 40 through 55, you'll see this language occur over and over again. And you'll see it in some other places also, like Isaiah 35 and, um, and, and later on. But Babylon is going to destroy Jerusalem, 
He's going to put in, Babylon's going to put an end to the Davidic monarchy, like the kings of, da- of uh, the sons of David. The kingdom's going to come to an end, and he's going to bring them as exiles and as captives to Babylon. That's going to happen for about 70 years, and then they're going to be able to return home. That return home is pictured over and over again throughout these chapters of Isaiah as being analogous to the return to the promised land from Egypt, all the way back in the book of of Exodus and then Numbers. And so there's going to be this picture of them traveling through the wilderness again. Only in the book of Numbers, there was a 40-year wandering aimlessly until an entire generation died in the wilderness. And there's this constant picture of, of hunger and the people bitter and complaining and thirst and the people bitter and complaining and, and idolatry and rebellion, like all the way through it. You read the book of Numbers and it's every chapter you run into a new rebellion of, of the people. The priests rebel in the days of Korah. The people end up having uh, uh, sexual relations and idolatry with the people of Moab and with the women of Moab and and like all of this stuff is going on and it's a terrible wilderness experience and you come to find out that uh, even when it's time to enter the promised land there still is a heart of the people that hasn't fully committed themselves to God and so so you read through and it's it's not a great wilderness experience what Isaiah is going to do is he's going to say, you're going to come from Babylon and you're going to go through the wilderness back home, back to the promised land. But this time, there's not going to be 40 years of wandering aimlessly. There's going to be a highway in the wilderness. The valleys will be uh, lifted up and the mountains will be brought low and there will be a highway of our God that's there. And it's in that context and in that uh, language that this passage that's quoted here in Matthew chapter 3 is found. When it says, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The idea is the Lord is going to lead and go with his children through the wilderness and there's going to be a straight path. There's going to be a highway there. There's going to be a road there. In fact, the word uh, that's translated, make ready the way of the Lord, uh, that's the Greek word hodos. That, that's a word that means uh, a road. Like, like um, when the road to Damascus, that's that word. You know, road is just a, it's just a standard word that means like a street or a road. And so what you're seeing is the Lord is going to be on a road with his people going through the wilderness. John the Baptist is the one who is pictured as preparing the way for this new exodus, this return home, this reunion between the Lord and his people. But if John the Baptist is the one preparing the way for the Lord to meet with his people, if you read Matthew, who is filling the role of the Lord? Who is he preparing the way for? It's Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, we find out that Jesus is coming as God with us. Here, Jesus is the Lord who's meeting his people. If you go back to Isaiah 40 and you look at that word Lord, one of the things you'll see in each of your Bibles uh, is that it's going to be in all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. That happens when the divine name of God, something like Yahweh, is used in the Hebrew text. They translate that uh, in the Bible, not, they don't transliterate it as Yahweh. They usually, uh, in most modern English Bibles, will do it in all capital letters, the word Lord. And so the one that John the Baptist is preparing the way for is the Lord who met uh, Moses in the burning bush and the Lord who called uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob under the name El Shaddai and the one who is the covenant father of the children of Israel. 
That's who we're seeing is introduced into the story who John the Baptist is preparing the way for. If you're looking at the quotes from Isaiah so far, you've seen Jesus described as Emmanuel, God with us, and you've seen him described as Yahweh. You've seen him described as the Curios, as the, the Lord who is coming to reunite with his people. Um, those are profound uh, descriptions of the identity of Jesus that alerts you from very early on that the one who's going to be speaking has a divine authority unparalleled by any human being, by any human authority. Um, as it continues, you get to Matthew chapter 4, and this is where we're going to find the third citation from Isaiah. This is the one we talked about this morning. This is where Jesus, after hearing that John the Baptist has been put in prison, uh, has been taken into custody, he moves from Nazareth, remember he's Jesus of Nazareth, he moves to a new city, he moves to Capernaum, right there by the sea. And uh, it happens that this is in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And then chapter 4 and verse 14 says that Jesus moving here fulfills what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, uh, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I won't spend a lot of time on this one because it's what the lesson was about this morning. But if you go back and you read that citation, it's Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And what Isaiah is saying is basically you've had darkness with Assyria who has come and oppressed God's people. And there's a lot of fear and dread and anguish and gloom. But he says that that's not going to last. There's going to be light that comes through the darkness. And those walking in darkness will be able to experience the light of God. And then as you keep reading through chapter 9, you get to an explanation of what that light's going to come from. You're going to have a new Davidic king, a king from the line of David. And in describing that king, the language that's used, again, is language that is not going to be used of any mere mortal person. He says... Unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then it goes on to describe the fact that the government will be upon his shoulders and what that government's going to look like, and it's going to be one that brings about peace. It's going to be one that brings about uh, joy, and it's going to be one uh, where the will of the Lord is done. It's in that scriptural context that Jesus then begins to preach the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is fulfilling the role of bringing the light to a world of darkness by being that son who is the wonderful counselor, everlasting, uh, or mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, and then bringing about that government, that kingdom that Isaiah looked to that would put an end to the, the pain and the anguish and the darkness and the gloom of oppression that was being put upon them by Assyria. Jesus is doing that in perhaps unexpected ways uh, through the bringing light in a world of darkness and sin. But again, you're seeing Jesus take on the role of God in the way that he is saving his people. Next uh, passage, look at Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, uh, verses 14 through 17. 
we're going to have a citation here from the book of Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, that's, you know, for Christians, Isaiah 53 is by and large one of the most famous passages uh, from the Old Testament, probably uh, the most famous passage from Isaiah. It's where we talk about the suffering servant uh, who, uh, you know, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken by God. Uh, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, but by his stripes we are healed. Like, it, it's, it's the servant of God who suffers to bring about healing for his people. And if you're looking for a description of the beauty of what Christ did for us on the cross— that's a profound one. Um, well, Matthew's going to use that, and he's going to use imagery from it in a number of places, but what's fascinating is he uses it right here in a way perhaps we wouldn't always think to do so. Uh, in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 14, it says, when Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. So Peter's married, and his wife's mother is sick and has a fever and she's in bed. So then verse 15, Jesus touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and waited on him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon possessed and he was casting out spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. So it's like he heals Peter's mother-in-law and then they start bringing in people. He's casting out demons with, with a word. That's that divine authority we're talking about. Uh, you know, human beings generally don't tell demons what to do when they listen. Uh, but with the authority of God in Jesus, he's able to do that type of thing. He's then healing all of those people who, who are coming to him. And then we find out in verse 17 that this is to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. That's the Septuagint translation of Isaiah 53 and verse 4. Now, he's using that not necessarily to talk about Jesus uh, carrying away our, uh, like it, our sins, uh, as we kind of spiritualize it. It's often, in this context, he's literally talking about like healing people of diseases and sicknesses and infirmities. Uh, and what I think that does, at least in my mind, is it reminds me that Jesus' ministry and his life, while yes, it culminates in the cross and the forgiveness of sins, which is, uh, and he's, I mean, that, that's our hope of eternal life, Jesus doesn't only come to forgive sins. Jesus also comes to heal those who are broken. Jesus also comes to um, uh, take out our infirmities and to carry away our diseases. He came to heal people. There's a beautiful uh, healing that Jesus does uh, of a man whose friends help, he's paralyzed and his friends help lower him through a roof. And Jesus is going to heal the person, but before he does so, he does something that shocks everyone when he says, your sins are forgiven. And when he says that, everyone's like, wait a minute. Again, that's not something a human being can say. You can't forgive somebody's sins. Uh, and so they, they are thinking he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's actually a pretty good question. Uh, you know, that's, they've answered their own question by wording it that way. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Absolutely. Uh, God with us, Emmanuel. Uh, but Jesus acts with the authority of God to forgive sins. But then he says, why are you reasoning among yourselves saying who can forgive sins but God alone? What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or arise, take up your bed and walk. 
so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, Jesus says to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and walk. And what Jesus does there is he links the healing of God through the forgiveness of sins to the healing that God does of people who are uh, suffering with infirmities on this earth. And he says that one is a profound evidence or demonstration of the other. It, if Jesus came and he never healed anyone, if he doesn't care about people physically, why do you think he would care about people spiritually? If he won't help someone when they have a visible need right in front of them, why would you trust him with the invisible need that you can't even see? And I would say a lot of times that's probably the same thing the church should think about too. If we tell people we care about them spiritually and we want their sins to be forgiven and yet they're in need right in front of us and we don't help them with that, why would they trust that we actually have the answers for the spiritual problems you can't see if we're not willing to help with the visible problems right in front of us that you can see? And so the suffering servant, he does suffer and he does take away uh, the ailments of the world but he doesn't only take away the sins. He also was there to help people in their pain and in their suffering. And Isaiah 53 is directly cited about Jesus' healing ministry rather than just his ministry of suffering and dying on the cross. And perhaps that's a lesson to the church as well uh, for what our mission and purpose includes. Number five uh, citation comes from Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, uh, Isaiah is going to be quoted again. This is going to be Isaiah 42. Earlier, I mentioned that Isaiah 40 through 55, there's a lot of stuff in there about what we call like the new exodus. Um, there's also a number of songs in there, usually broken up into four, that are called servant songs. Although if you were to read through it, you'll see quite a few references to a servant that's going to come. And we just spent you know, some time talking about Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Well, that's not the only place that the servant is spoken of. The servant is spoken of in quite a few places in Isaiah, in those chapters, and you learn quite a few things about him. One of the things that you learn about the servant is that it seems that the servant that God is speaking of through Isaiah is, at least in the book of Isaiah, in, uh, represented by Israel. Um, Israel is supposed to be God's servant. Israel is supposed to be a light to the nations, like the servant is. But one of the things that you'll see as you keep reading those sections is you'll see that the servant didn't always do what God wanted the servant to do. Sometimes the servant worshipped idols. Sometimes the servant became blind and became deaf, just like the idols that the servant worshipped. And you read that and you think, well, that doesn't sound like Jesus. Uh, so who is the servant? And should we always apply the servant to Jesus? You know, a lot of people don't. Uh, like when, when Jews are reading that, uh, those passages— they don't see the servant as messianic or as about Jesus or the Messiah. They read the servant to be about perhaps some prophet or about Israel itself. And there's reason for that. If you read through, the servant is called Israel several times. And so when we apply the servant to Jesus, we are making an interpretive move there that I think is justified, but I think it's justified because Jesus applies the servant to himself and Jesus is an Israelite. So, in essence, Israel was called to be the servant, and Israel failed at that vocation. They failed at their job because they didn't live up to what the servant was supposed to do. And so there was a faithful Israelite, Jesus, who took on the 
that task and that responsibility, that vocation of Israel for himself. And he lived out the life of the servant, and he suffered and died as the faithful servant. And in so doing, Israel accomplished their purpose before God because a faithful Israelite did it for them. He became the representative of all of the people and did it for them. And so uh, the illustration I've used before that I, th I think in my mind is helpful is, uh, you know, we, the U.S. is racing uh, Russia to the moon. Uh, who won? Well, I mean, I've never been on the moon, but I still say we won. Uh, why? Because someone who represented America did that. Uh, the same thing is true with the Olympics. You can say, well, how many, how many golds did America win? Well, I mean, none of us in here, I don't think, have any. Uh, unless I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, tell me. That'll be an amazing story. Uh, but, but how many do we have? Well, none of us personally have. But has America, have we been able to share in that? Yeah, because an American has done it on behalf of the country. And I think that's kind of what you have Jesus doing. Jesus becomes the embodiment of Israel and fulfills Israel's call by fulfilling Torah, by being the light to the nations, by being that faithful servant who died for the people, who suffered in order to bring about healing to the rest of the world. And so, Jesus does become that faithful embodiment of the Spirit of God, or the servant of God. And in Matthew chapter 12, another passage about the servant is going to be applied to Jesus. This is one from Isaiah 42. So in uh, Isaiah, uh, or sorry, in, in Matthew 12, Jesus is being questioned over and over again. Uh, and one of the things he was just questioned about is he went into a synagogue and there was a man there with a withered hand and Jesus healed him but he did it on the Sabbath. Now, you could either focus on the fact that, wow, an incredible thing has happened here uh, that only uh, could have done, been done through the will of God, or you could focus on the fact that he did it the wrong day. I don't think you ought to be doing that on the Sabbath. So Jesus says, what, you really think, should you do good or bad on the Sabbath? You know, can you do a good thing? Did God design Sabbath so that we would stop helping each other? Is that really what you think? Because if that's your view of Sabbath, you've made a theological error pretty significantly somewhere back there. Jesus is going to say, yes, you can do good on the Sabbath, and I think you all know that. If, you're, if you have um, a sheep that, uh, that falls into a pit on the Sabbath, you're going to help it out because it's the right thing to do. And I got news for you. This man who's standing here in front of you in the synagogue, he's more important than your sheep. And so Jesus heals him right there on the Sabbath. So when he does that, the, uh, verse 14, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed after him, and he healed them and warned them not to tell who he was. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. And it's one of the, the servant songs, the first one. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. By the way, um, that, uh, that next phrase too, I will put my spirit upon him. That should remind us pretty explicitly of the baptism of Jesus. The servant in whom I am well pleased uh, my beloved, whom I put my spirit on. Remember Jesus when he's baptized uh, earlier in this gospel, he comes up out of the water, the spirit descends upon him, and you have my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, that, that's all Isaiah 42, Jesus being identified and inaugurated at that moment as God's servant. Well, right here, he's quoting that same passage again. 
And he says, he will, uh, verse 19, he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Uh, and a smoldering wick, um, sorry, a battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. There's a couple references to the Gentiles in that. One of them is the end of verse 18 that says, he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And then at the, in verse 21, in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Here you're getting a picture of this servant of God whose salvation and whose justice and in whom even the Gentiles can find their hope. You're getting a picture of a ministry that's uh, going to, while at this point it's, it's restricted uh, primarily to the house of Israel. It's going to be a ministry that will eventually bring hope, justice, and salvation, even to all of the nations and even to the Gentiles. And uh, Matthew wants to embed that idea in our heads early on in the Gospel of Matthew uh, so that we'll see that what Jesus is doing will have global uh, impact and effect. Um, Matthew 13 is going to be the next citation. This is number six. In this passage, uh, Jesus is describing his teaching in parables, and uh, he is asked, you know, why does he speak in that way? And uh, one of the reasons given is because not everyone's going to have ears that hear. People will have ears, but a lot of people will close their ears. People will have eyes, but a lot of people will close their eyes to the message of Jesus. And parables are a good way of sifting through who will dig deeper for the true meaning that's there and who will reject it without taking another look. Um, and so Jesus, in uh, chapter 13 of verse 13, he says, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they, do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of the people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return, and I would heal them. He says they've closed their eyes and they've closed their ears so that they won't see and hear. And if they would, I would they would return and I would heal them. But, but in that passage, he's quoting from Isaiah 6, and Isaiah 6 is Isaiah's call from like the very throne of God to this ministry. And the problem Isaiah is going to face is he's going to face people who will not listen and will not hear and will not change. And Jesus is applying that same passage to the rejection that he's going to receive. And you can see that coming about in his teaching uh, through parables. Matthew chapter 15 is the seventh quotation. In Matthew 15, Jesus and his disciples are being criticized uh, because of traditions that they are not following, particularly uh, involving hand washing. These are things that do not come from Torah, but they have developed over time, and they are now being judged because they have not uh, lived up to certain traditional expectations that have been placed upon them by the leaders of the people, and the Pharisees are the ones criticizing them. And so Jesus uh, turns their criticism around in chapter 15 and verse 7 and says, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as precepts, uh, or as doctrines, the precepts of men. 
So that's a quotation from Isaiah 29. And in Isaiah 29, you're getting a pretty lengthy denunciation of false prophets. They are described as being uh, like drunk men, uh, and they stagger about speaking nonsense, basically. He says uh, they're like people who can read, and you hand them a book, but they can't open it because the book is sealed. And when the book is unsealed, it's handed to them, but then they can't read because they've become illiterate. And it's like no matter what, the false prophets can't get an actual true message. So they just say what the people want to hear them say. And what's fascinating about that passage in Isaiah 29 is that the Pharisees would consider themselves to be those who are like most strenuous about the, the, the teaching, and yet Jesus is applying the rebuke to the false prophets to them and saying, you have become the false prophets because you're the ones who have elevated your traditions, things God did not give you, and you're speaking those as those are things that God did give you. That's what a false prophet does. A false prophet speaks things that did not come from God as if they did come from God. And that's what you're doing right now. You've become the false prophets that you hate so much. Uh, and so in that, Jesus is uh, showing that they have ironically become their own enemies without even realizing it. Finally, Matthew chapter 21 is the, uh, the last citation from Isaiah. That's a, that is an explicit named citation. Um, and in Matthew 21, this is Jesus cleansing the temple. When he goes in there, he's flipping the tables over and he drives the people out of the temple. And in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 13, this is what Jesus says as he's doing that. He said to them, is it, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Um, so there's actually two passages that Jesus cites right there. The robber's den passage comes from Jeremiah 7, where Jeremiah stands at the temple and says, this temple's going to be destroyed because you've turned it into a robber's den. But the passage right above it that says, my house shall be called the house of prayer, that comes from Isaiah 56. And if you read that whole context, what is being said is certain people who have traditionally been excluded from the temple are being invited and welcomed in. Specifically, he mentions eunuchs and foreigners. And then if you read that sentence in Isaiah 56, it says, my house shall be called the house of prayer for all people. And what Jesus is saying is the time is now for the temple to be fulfilling its God-intended purpose, not of excluding foreigners and others, but actually of, of welcoming them. And that's what the ministry of Jesus is going to be about, opening up the door to the very presence of God to all peoples. Uh, one thing that's fascinating about that passage in Isaiah 56 is how uh, directly significant it would be to the Ethiopian foreigner eunuch uh, who hears the gospel on his way home from the temple. And uh, he's reading Isaiah 53. And uh, Philip enters the, the chariot with him and they begin to study together. I can't help but think they kept reading a little bit, uh, that they had a rather lengthy study that went from 53, perhaps to 56, where you see that foreigners and uh, eunuchs who might be barred from the temple are actually very welcome to the very presence of God. And, uh, and that's the passage that Jesus cites here as he's cleansing the temple and demonstrating uh, the, the failures of the temple to be what God is calling it to be. So you look at all of those passages 
there's a lot that it says about Jesus. Um, but to summarize some of the things that I think we've seen just by looking at Matthew's study of Isaiah is we can see that Jesus is the embodiment or the incarnation of God himself among his people. In the person of Jesus, God has returned to be with his people. Uh, I think you can see that Jesus is bringing light to a world of darkness. A world of sorrow and anguish and sin is going to find hope and light and healing in the person of Jesus. Um, Jesus will bring healing in multiple ways. Uh, yes, healing from sin, but also physical healing of people's uh, diseases and infirmities. And even though he's doing that, his audience will be like Isaiah's audience and that he will be rejected for it. Isaiah had to battle with false prophets. Jesus has to battle with false prophets. Isaiah's message was rejected by people whose eyes wouldn't see and ears wouldn't hear. And Jesus is going to face that same thing. The audience of Isaiah has found new life in the audience of Jesus. And finally, Jesus is bringing salvation with a universal hope to all peoples and nations. It's for the Gentiles as well as the Jews, and it is a time where God is opening up the door to all peoples to be his people and for uh, people of, uh, of every nation to be uh, part of his own kingdom. And that is the message that the Gospel of Matthew ends with, with Jesus now having all authority in heaven and on earth and saying, make disciples of all nations. The door is open. For everyone. By the way, the word nations in Greek is the same word as Gentiles. Uh, and so that, that's, that's an invitation to everyone in, to enter into uh, the reign and the lordship of Jesus. And it's our invitation as well to do the same. If there's anyone here who would like to take advantage, if there's anyone here who would like to become a Christian here this evening, please let that be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.